tonight, but what I want to do is I want to take us through some more uh, critical questions that we might ask about evangelism, and not just evangelism, but how we evangelize just as individuals, and whether or not this is something that we should even bother doing. And if we shouldn't bother doing it, if we shouldn't do evangelism at all in the ways that we are commonly taught to do it or expected to do it, then how might it look different? And uh, so tonight we'll go through some different uh, questions and hopefully we'll get a good dialogue going. Um, I titled uh, Evangelism, Is It Really the End of the World? I think that's kind of the impression that I've gotten so far from some of the videos we watched. If you don't confess your sin right now, you're going to hell. You could die right now. Jesus could come back right now. And if you don't make this last-ditch effort, then uh, that's it. You're done. You're toast, literally. The question is, do we in this room even think that way? I mean, we might tell someone else, hey, you've got to make this decision right now. Your, soul, your eternal soul depends on it. But do we actually live in a way that expects the end. I have some broad questions which are just going to, we're going to hit on tonight. Uh, these are at least some of the questions that I've been thinking about as we have been going through our series. One, do we have to define evangelism? Have we actually said this is what evangelism is? I don't know that we have. If we could give a definition of evangelism, what would it look like? Um, if we think evangelism is important, how would we critique it? And ultimately, when we critique other people for doing evangelism, aren't we just really critiquing ourselves? Okay, so I, I went on the web looking for statistics on evangelism. And what I found... These are, these are off websites. I, it was hard to find legitimate stats, but this is what I found. Uh, God bless Google. 90% of first-time believers do not join a church. Only 3 to 6% of people who become believers at a crusade become connected to a church. So Harvest Crusade, Billy Graham Crusade, 3 to 6% actually become connected. One church denomination reported that they had 384,000 new commitments within a 10-year span, and their retention rate was only 6%. So, my first question is, do you even have to join a church once you become saved? I mean, what does it mean to become saved? I would say that probably saying the prayer, as is commonly understood, is not what it means to be saved. If, if we don't believe that, then why do we still do it? Or why do we tell other people to do it? If joining a church or if saying the prayer isn't what saves you, then what does? What does it mean to know you're going to heaven? I mean, how do you know that? Nobody lays awake at night wondering if you know you're going. <laughs> On the off chance that you do wonder that, what causes it? Yeah, Phil? Uh, I, I, I feel like there's so many things. Uh, an unclear definition and my general ability as a person to doubt anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I mean, conflicting opinions of other of different people who say it's different things and like who define it differently. And so like again, I guess the same idea, but like, clear definition, but not only like from the Bible, but from other people and conflicting opinions often. Monique. I think oftentimes it's just like scripture, like whether it be a poor understanding of scripture or just really strong scripture that talks about like when Christ is like, oh, I cast out demons in your name and this and that and this and that, and Christ is still like, yeah, you did all that, but I still never knew you. Like those types of verses, or like the gate is narrow, and so you start to like, I don't know, doubt or question. Like you definitely believe and you definitely love God, but are you doing whatever quote unquote it is that you're supposed to be doing to be on that narrow path? Like. Do you think you're okay like the person that even went as far as to cast out demons, which is something I've never done, and Christ still never knew them, so what does that mean? Like, what's emphasized the relationship? Well, then that's too easy to not. Is it works? Is it is both? So, scripture, I guess. Okay. Phil? I think at least for me personally, like, honestly, it's that I don't necessarily see a difference in my life and anyone else's life who would say that they're not a Christian or that they're not going to have a life, that I don't all see a difference in that. Do you have to join a church in order to be considered saved? Yes. Do you think that's possible that in some senses the church is almost run like a business and the way to judge the success of the product is by the number of consumers? I mean, it's kind of based on a business model to me in some cases, the way the church is run, because what other model might there be, I guess, would be the question for a lot of churches in America. Yeah. In fact, uh, on several of these websites that put these stats out, they almost, almost all of them had an article talking about how the church should not be run as a business. Because if you run the church as a business, then you get these types of expectations. Well, we're not retaining a certain amount of people. We're not getting a certain amount of tithe. Clearly, we're, our message is not being reached. Well, what message are you trying to reach? That you need more people in the pews and more money? Or that you're interested in transforming their lives? Yes. It's also because we like to be able to quantify things as people, to be able to understand and see if there's progress and like to feel like we're getting somewhere. And I, I don't personally believe that joining a church is the route to being saved or the way of knowing that you're saved. But as far as us trying to track any of this, it's nearly impossible to uh, track the lives and the commitment, commitments of people who don't join a church because that's essentially lost data. Well, part of it is like, what What do you mean, like, a church, how is that defined, and like, to join, does that mean you have to be like an official member, or like just participating in the community, because I might say that to be a Christian is part, partially, or, or maybe fully, I'm not sure, um, participating in like, the body of Christ, which would include like, embodying Christ to your community, to people, in which case you have to do that in the community, and it's not necessarily like being Christian on your own. Okay, probably for this, for these statistics, they're concerned with people actually showing up to the church building and participating in a program. And by participating in the program, you're being plugged in, and you should be growing in your understanding and your faith. That's my understanding of probably where these statistics are coming from. And Ben brings up a good point. I mean, can you quantify a person's walk with God? I mean, if someone makes a commitment at some point in their life and they don't come back to your church, I mean, does that mean they just stop believing? But is there value to going to church? Right, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, mainly because I'm going to argue the point that 
evangelism is not about method. It is not about program. It is not about statistics. It is not about numbers. It is not about tracks. It's not about anything that you probably would see on, on YouTube or Google. Really, I'm going to argue that it has to do with how you act as a disciple. And the, the question we're going to have to ask ourselves is, if we don't act like a disciple of Christ, why? And so that's kind of where we're going. It's a difficult question to ask yourselves. If you believe something but you don't act it, then how could you go out into the world and stand on the street corner and con convert people? If we're ready to cast out the street preacher model, then what's our alternative? Living Christ-like lives. But if we don't even do that, what's the point? Okay, what does it mean to convert? I have a hard time with that one because like, some churches believe that if you're not converted, then you're not saved. And being raised as a Christian, like, there's no, like, point that I can look at in my life where it's like, this is when Christ was with me, this is when he wasn't. I really, like, don't know what the alternative would look like. Yes, I suspect that for the majority of people in here, your experience may be less conversion and more recommitment. Maybe in junior high, then high school <laughs> twice, you know, you know, maybe in college, maybe a great chapel speaker came along, oh, I'm going to recommit. You know, you do this exercise. You know, every time. And they, they even tell you when you're up the hill, you know, when you go back down the hill, you know, it'll start to fade. Shouldn't that bother you? Like, the fact that you make these commitments because, you know, you go to camp and you're separated and you think, oh, this is wonderful. I'm going to recommit my life. I'm going to get rid of all my Metallica and everything. And <laughs> you get back down. And they even tell you before you leave, don't, now don't change because you're going to change when you get back. And, of course, you get back. And two weeks later, you, you didn't throw anything away. They go, what's the point of that exercise? Yeah. I remember talking to this guy who ran a camp and kind of posing that question of like, doesn't it bother you to know that like these kids like recommit their lives but then go home and like nothing really changes? And his kind of thought was like, but like it keeps their hearts tender. And even if that happens like over and over again, if they have to recommit their lives, it still keeps their heart from completely like Phil? So? I'm not sure about this, but I think I mean there's something to be said that even if someone recommits or converts or changes and sort of commits to changing in some way, that even if what someone committed to isn't necessarily followed through on completely, like two weeks later, it doesn't happen entirely. But that doesn't mean that in every case, or even many of the cases, that there's not any change that occurs. Um, and I'm not sure if like that the change that does occur is significant enough. Like someone could say, yeah, like it really was significant. That this really made me see something differently and have a different perspective and want to treat people differently in this area of my life. And maybe I didn't change everything entirely, but I don't think that at least that amount of change that does occur sometimes should be entirely discounted and say it's an entire waste of money or an entire waste of time. Um, but I'm not sure if that changes enough. Um, personally, I just don't know. Okay, so it might be difficult to tell, like, at what point do you say, okay, this was enough change that, okay, good, this was worth your money and time. I mean, I looked for stats on, like, church camp, you know, non-retention rates or whatever. And it's, new. I mean, no, there's just, nobody does studies like that. Um, but the idea is, at least maybe in my experience, although I tend to be a little bit more cynical about these types of things, um, 
that more people probably recommit and then don't change the vast majority of their life when they get back home. But again, you, you can argue with me, that that's just maybe my cynicism, but I, I just, I don't expect that much, especially from high school and junior high students. Yeah. I have two things. The first one I think was kind of interesting. Uh, one of my professors, Dr. Blind, so you know him, like when he was, working, I think, at a youth camp or something, they decided instead of, like, they had the whole, you know, night with the worship band and everything, like, the perfect time for an altar call, and, like, what they did instead was they said, if you guys are interested in this, then come during your free time tomorrow and, like, talk with us about it, which I thought was kind of a cool idea. It's not just necessarily all in the moment with, like, the music and the atmosphere. But, um, secondly, I think that conversion, like, I personally don't think of that as like a single solitary moment, but more like a continual conversion of your heart, like and like a progressing one, hopefully more towards like the heart of God, the priorities of Jesus, things like that. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that if we're still talking about the uh, the church camp for kids thing, the, the scripture that the, those kinds of organizations would cling to is the one about planting the seed. As long as the seed is planted, God will continue to work it in someone's heart and. You know, that may have significance that you can't quantify, and so... It's possible it could be planted by someone else, right? Yeah. Well, even if it's already planted, you can still take multiple people to water it. Not to, not to quantify again, but have you ever heard that thing that's like, usually takes like 15 or like 20 experiences or like people to like come into someone's life before they like really change or accept Christ? It, kind of like what Brittany was saying, that it can still be like a slow progression of changing and it's a continual work in progress. Good points. I think though that when we typically think of conversion, we think of the immediate gratification almost. Like, okay, say this prayer, done, converted. Good. Because the type of things that you and Brittany are mentioning have more to do with a transformed life. And that's a more complicated process. And many of us in here may say to ourselves, I'm not even sure that's going on in me. And if it's not going on in me, then is that affecting the way that I might be evangelizing or not evangelizing? John. I think sometimes we think there's like, a, like we're ones and zeros. We're either in or out, right? That's the way we've been taught classically about evangelism. Like you're either a zero or a one. And like one author I was reading was saying, it might be zero to 100. Maybe 50 is when you've crossed over. But people are all different directions. And even after you've kind of become a Christian, or whatever classic term you use, become saved, converted, repented, whatever you want to pick, you still have a long way to go because you are being transformed, like you said. And we need to look at people maybe more as like a 1 or a 12 or a 15 or a 25. And like just seeing that people are moving towards that thing and they're being transformed themselves. I'm thinking you're going to around. I just think, I just think to that, it makes it, I feel like it's easier to like get tied up with um, like works kind of thing when it goes from like one to a hundred because it seems to be this like, I can do better, I can progress. Or when it's like a zero or one, it seems more based on faith because it's just, this is what Jesus did, either I accept it or I don't. Not that I disagree, but it just seems like it could easily get tangled. Ben? I think another problem with the thinking of this, and I've fallen this before, and I've seen it a lot, is just the idea that a conversion is a final victory and a final change to, okay, now they're like, oh, they're great now. But it's like the beginning, not the end. Yeah, 
gosh, eight or nine years ago when I was a sophomore at APU, um, they used to have a class called Foundations of Ministry. One of the things that got me the most about this class was that uh, the professor would, she'd give you all these programs, like these are the 10 steps to being a better Christian. And these are the 10 steps to 10 this and that. And at some point I thought to myself, what happens if you go back a step? Because I see that, if I'm honest with myself, I see that all the time in myself, right? I might have a period of time where I'm like going up the steps, you know, whatever. And then there are other times where I'm like falling back down further than when I started the first time. So it is kind of an interesting analogy that seems at least to not work. Like we like to picture things in these steps and like we're, we're getting better at these things. But if we're more honest with how we find ourselves in our life, it's a lot messier. Sometimes you're good, sometimes you're not. And why is it so hard to get over the one thing, for example, some area of sin that, that you can't get past? Now, the reason, by the way, that I have this up here, do we really believe in the concept of sin? And I, I think this is tied to evangelism. If you don't think you need to evangelize, perhaps one of those reasons is you're not really sure that sin is that big an issue. Because for most people who evangelize, that's kind of the first tack they take, right? You've got sin in your life. You're going to go to hell. If you don't get rid of that sin, you know, you're, you're going to have a problem. Well, the question is, do we really believe in sin? Before you answer that, before you think about it, think about the areas in your life where you may struggle with sin or multiple sin, and if you've actively thought about fixing it you know, in the last year or the last month, last two months. And I'll be honest, I have not been doing that. If I look at areas of my life where I really need to change, I think I've just been telling myself, I got the get out of jail free card. You know, I'll get to heaven. God will judge me. I'll live in a shack next to John because that'll be the, the, uh, the rewards we got. And, uh, you know, hey, a shack's just fine, right? It's still heaven. A shack in heaven's better than a mansion in hell, right? I mean, I find myself thinking that way. So then I think, what, motive, or what uh, motivation do I have to go evangelize? What's the point? I'm already in. Why should I even bother changing my life? So a desire to be like Jesus wouldn't motivate you to go evangelize, even though, like you say, you're already saved, so you're not worried about saving yourself more or something by evangelizing, but there's no like desire. Well, that's even, again, that's the deeper question, right? If we're not even so concerned with the sin in our own lives, if we're not even concerned with saving other people, do we, that's why I asked, do we really think of ourselves as saved? If you thought of yourself as a person who was saved from an ultimate punishment, like an eternal punishment, wouldn't that make you act differently? And if you don't act differently in that way, then the question is, do you really believe those things? and the way you treat it, what model you go for, because if, if you really believe in that, that perpetual punishment, then you get that urgency. And then is it even acceptable to spend a lot of time working on one person's life and cultivating one person's heart when you could have been, you know, theoretically talking to five other people, like, versus I can take a little bit more time and work on this person and making their life full while they're here instead of just converting a few people I can to save them from the absolute or hell, you know, where's that middle ground? Right. Keep this question of the concept of sin in the back of your mind because we're going to come back to it hopefully at the end. 
So uh, I want to put up here on the Great, the great Commission. So uh, starting in verse uh, 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, what I see in the Great Commission is something that's a lot more difficult. One, go and make disciples. In other words, don't just go convert people. Right? If you're making a disciple of someone, then you need to invest in them in the same way perhaps that Jesus invested in his disciples. If we look at the model of Jesus making disciples, we have to honestly step back and say, do we even do that? Do the ways that we evangelize today model the way that Jesus discipled his own disciples? And if it doesn't, why do we keep doing it? Because freshmen need something to do in Mexicali over, uh, over spring break. <laughs> get those. Get those. <laughs> so I get the mic, so. All right. And also, interesting, he says, not only make them a disciple, but teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you to obey. And if we're honest with ourselves, how good are we at, at obeying what God has commanded us to do, what Jesus has commanded us to do? So if we don't model the very type of discipleship that we're supposed to be modeling, if we don't obey in the same way, then how can we expect to go out and make disciples of other people? I mean, that's kind of the basic question here. But if we don't do it, who will? I mean, everybody's fallen, right? Everybody sins. So even if you're struggling, if you say, well, I'm struggling, so I'm not fit to evangelize, well, a non-saved person isn't going to evangelize, so now we've left, like, if this is our calling, like, who's left to go do it? Who says anybody has to do it? One thing that my uh, Christian life intervention professor said last semester that I thought was interesting is taking this in context and, you know, is this even a verse that's meant for all Christians? He's speaking directly to his 12 disciples. Can we take this as a command directly to us rather than just a piece of a narrative spoken to the disciples? I mean, at what point do people just take that verse out without considering that he was maybe speaking to the disciples and not all future believers of the Christian faith? I see John laughing in the back. That's exactly what I would ask, right? I see him. Uh, objection. Yeah. Okay. But we're not going to go there for now. Let's just assume, okay, let's just assume for the moment that it was good enough to tell his disciples to do. They went out and they did it, and presumably others did it too. We also know that when Jesus, sometimes when he refers to disciples, he refers to a larger group of people. So I don't, I don't know specifically who he's talking about. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that even if his disciples are supposed to be the one discipling, we should probably still obey what, what we've been commanded to do, regardless of who he's talking to. Yes, Monique. Um, just to kind of hit back on this over the past couple of weeks, I'm not going to say that like, you need a relationship with someone to turn to Christ because we've established that people come to Christ in all different ways. But if you take obeying serious, like you said, to the fact that you've changed your life to obey, and that's a whole process, and you're going to teach someone else how to obey, that kind of sort of implies some sort of relationship in which you can, at least to a point, invest in that person and 
show them how to do that walk by doing it yourself or helping and encouraging getting them plugged in as opposed to maybe just feeling good about yourself because you passed out 50 tracks or you got someone to say a prayer and never talk to them again and never get them involved or plugged in or, or show them where they can go if you can't provide at least where they can continue to walk. So it kind of implies a more responsibility. John? There's still an element though of just telling people. I mean, maybe not on the basis of this verse, but last week Morgan brought up the verse about how are they to believe if they don't know, and how are they to know if you don't tell them? And so I think there are there is a biblical support for the idea that the goal is disciple making. The goal is transforming lives. The goal is to have a heart like Christ. That's the goal. But there are still some steps you have to take maybe at the outset. Like somebody said, it might be just the beginning. There are just probably some people who don't know or can't put it together or just have refused to put it together and can't even start on the process of being made into a disciple until they just take the first step of saying, okay, let me give it a shot. Jill? I think you could probably, John, make the claim that in our society today, most people know what it is about, at least within this sphere of influence where we would normally talk to people. But I think, from what I've experienced, what people know about the Christian faith is hypocrisy and hate and people who behave just like they behave, so why become a Christian at all? So I think it, you can kind of tie it back to people know what it's about, they just don't know why they want to be involved in it, which kind of comes back to us and our responsibility to model this life that's supposed to be so radically different. John? I'll come back on that and say I agree. We've had a sentiment in this group that people already know the basics of faith. We give people a lot of credit when they say everybody already knows. I think even Christians struggle without even really knowing some of the basics. Like, we kind of know the vocabulary, the terminology, but if you really oppressed somebody, and I came up to you and said, tell me what must I do to be saved? I think half of us would have a hard time answering without giving a lot of, well, there's some people who say this, or some people who say this. It's just like, no, I just give me an answer. I want to know what to do. Like, it's interesting here, it says, like, and teach them to obey everything I've committed. And it seems like in the majority of evangelism, and like, in those types of ways, it's more like you teach them, like, propositional statements about, like, what this theology means, or like, you know, yeah, you're sinful, and then Jesus died, and like, this is, you know, grace, and, and things like that. It's not really, like, teach them to obey everything I've commanded them. Like, I don't, this is the thing that it, it seems like it's missing a lot from that type of evangelism. Like, and I'm actually, like, saying, like, preaching what Jesus as much as like, or even like going back to the Ten Commandments or things like that. Like. Yeah, um, and most of us in here consider ourselves fairly intelligent Christians just because we engage and we just know what's going on. Maybe we have some sense that the one sentence answer is not the right, is not the right answer. Monique? I was kind of going along that same line as Brittany is, we're not perfect. And I don't believe in like necessarily having one bright answer for being like, this is exactly verbatim what it means to be saved, or even 100% if we are saved, and there's all these questions that we'll never know the answer to. Can you lose your salvation? Blah, 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 blah. But we are called to be ready at all times to give, what is it, the verse? Like to give an account of the hands that we have or whatever to whoever asks us. So your testimony is just that, your testimony. I don't think we need to memorize a speech. I don't think we need to convert people. But I have had people come up to me before, like from my classes that I didn't even know, like, and literally it was like, okay, well, I'm a Christian, and this is why, you know, and it just sparked a conversation or whatever it might be. So if you just give, you know, a little talk about, like, your life or why, it's 
sometimes that's enough to plant a little seed if you don't have the time to have a relationship with someone. It's not about the right answers. I don't agree with that, taking a quiz or knowing, like, I'm not saying that we should take a quiz. What I'm trying to point out is that if we ourselves have difficulty answering these things, then we should get out of our minds the assumption that all people kind of already know about Christianity. And that by telling them something about it, it's telling them something they already know. Even we have a hard time articulating it. And some of us have been doing it for a long time. So that just means that that assumption is probably a bad assumption. That everybody just, because they, like, they saw John 316 in a football game, everybody already knows. I think that most people don't know. Yeah, and we gotta, we're going to move on, but uh, I might push back and say, you know, if we exclude, you know, Exodus or maybe Christians who know more about their faith than the average Christian, then it's not just a question of people who don't know anything about Jesus, but then it becomes a question of Christians who don't know anything about Christianity. I mean, that should be just as troubling to us as people who don't believe. So, uh, moving on. My question here, isn't evangelism nothing more than just method? And if it's only method, I mean, shouldn't we just get rid of it? Going out onto the street corner is a method. But if we can sit back and if we can critique that and if we can say, well, we, we have problems with that, maybe we have problems with it because you're not making a disciple, because you yourself are not in the right place to be doing this, because maybe you don't understand enough, because you're not really providing any answers because, you know, maybe you give a whole list of reasons as to why that type of evangelistic endeavor doesn't work. Shouldn't we be able to say then, we should just dump that method altogether. We should go to all of our fellow Christians and say, no more street evangelizing. It's not doing anything. I mean, do, do we have the, you know, do we have the right to do that? Sorry. Well, I don't think we're going to get to that point because, I mean, all this debate is whether it is effective or not, and I don't think we're going to come to consensus on that as a room, much less as like an entire Christian body. Okay. Money? I don't think we can discount a method as ineffective because I think that probably becoming saved might be even a series of things. Like you might hear it from someone on a street corner, it might take a couple times in your lifetime, and then you engage in a relationship with someone who might disciple you more if we're going to use that term, whatever, and it's like a process. But would you say that that's a bad method? Phil. Well, I, I just think it's important to at least acknowledge that even if I won't choose to do, if I think something is a bad method, that doesn't necessarily mean it's completely ineffective or even that it's wrong. I might be entirely wrong. Like, and so if I think it's a bad method, I think it is a leap to say that means we should get rid of everything everywhere that doesn't. Because that's presumptuous. I agree with you, Phil. There is an assumption there, right? There is a leap. Right? And we don't want to make that kind of judgment. But what I'm asking is, again, this is coming from myself, right? I am not going to go out on the street corner, on the corner of Citrus and Alasta, and hold a sign out that says that. And I am willing to bet a dollar. <laughs> Do you have a dollar, Jill? <laughs> I'm willing to bet you that not a single person here is going to do it this week, nor are you really going to consider it. All I'm asking is, I mean, isn't that some consensus? I mean, shouldn't we be a little bit bolder and, and make the judgment call and say, hey, this is, uh, this is stupid? Okay, that's, that's going to be kind of the position I'm taking here to count on Morgan from last week, basically. Okay, Jill found this on Post Secret. 
I feel shame not for the wrong things I've done, but for the right things I have failed to do. And that really struck me last night. I wonder how many people feel shame for the wrong things you've done versus, yeah, you know what, maybe I should be more concerned with the right things I don't do. And if more Christians had the latter perspective, how would that change their ministry with the people around them? Yes. I think worrying about the right things that you failed to do, especially if we're talking about social justice, can be really crippling for a lot of believers. Like for me, in chapel just this year, they've talked about sex trafficking at least 500 times and never given a solution of what we can be doing about it. So it's just like everything sucks and there's nothing we can do about it. So what do you do with that? How do you go about worrying about the right things you failed to do and taking action? Where do you find answers for that? Brittany? Well, I think part of it is maybe we just don't care enough to find ways to get involved to stop things like that. I mean, it's not like there's no information out there. It's just like, are we going to spend the time to actually research it or actually spend our time and take, you know, carve out time to, to do that? I want to follow up on your question, by the way, because Tiffany Tao gave me this book, which I finally finished reading. I need to give it back to you. Disposable People. And uh, this book talks about modern-day slavery. And so I could see, on the one hand, you read this book, and they tell you about the sex trade in Thailand. They tell you about the workers in Pakistan. It's all these countries in the world, right? In Brazil, there are these slaves who make charcoal, which is then it goes to the factory, which makes the steel. And the steel is sold in Mexico, and Mexico turns it into car parts, which are then sold, put together in American car plants and, and by the cars we drive. So, you know, if you knew that, shouldn't you do something about it? Well, one thing you could do is not buy cars that you know, are involved in that process. If we're so convinced, and if we say we're so convicted by all the wrongs of the world, if I were to tell you that the product you bought, whether it's a shirt at the Gap or a pair of shoes from Nike, if I told you it was made in a sweatshop in Los Angeles or Cambodia, would you stop buying the products? Could you imagine what would happen if 150 million Christians in America suddenly just changed their entire attitude about how they consume, what they consume? I mean, could you imagine how huge an impact that would be? Again, the follow-up question that is, well, why doesn't it happen? Okay, so we have to close out. What I am ultimately arguing for here is that true evangelism is motivated from a source of legitimate discipleship. And not just the activity of you discipling someone else, but the activity of you being discipled yourself. So evangelism is not going and learning how to do it. Evangelism is being a disciple of Christ. And in that activity of obedience, correct living, stewardship, providing for those who need provision, that in that activity, not only is that evangelism, but if you're the type of person who believes that evangelism is something that has to be spoken, that doing those things first is what ultimately leads to that. And next week, John is going to disagree with me. And in all likelihood, most of you will disagree with me, but I think that the strength lies in the fact that if we are honest with ourselves, and if we stop and think for a minute, I'm supposed to be evangelizing to other people, I'm supposed to be modeling this Christian life, but I don't do it myself, then somewhere there's a conflict with what you think you should be doing, 
That is evangelizing. But what you're not doing in your Christian life. And if you can recognize the conflict, then I don't think that my position is so crazy. That first it starts with a change in you to actually engage in what I see as the Great Commission, discipleship and obedience. Let's pray, and then maybe we can have one more song afterwards. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together again. We thank you for the opportunity to come to an environment where we can question and where we can ask difficult questions, not only of ourselves, but of our action in the world. And so I pray that this week as we go out, that we'll not just stop uh, thinking about this, that, that there will be some type of action, that, 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 we will, that we will find some kind of value in considering some of the questions that we've dealt with tonight. So again, thank you for the opportunity uh, that we have to do this. And we pray this in your son's name.